all of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and hanging out today is Greg Ferrand. Greg, what is up, man? Dude, I'm just out of the gate. I'm just noticing. We're, we're, we're recording this in the evening. Uh, normally, uh, and our Patreon feed will see the, the Zoom of this. They'll see the video, not just the audio. And I just have to name out of the gate that the two of us look more like shit than normal. And, and that's <laughs> that's just saying something. I'm just saying, normally we look like shit, but I'm going to say we look like extra shit tonight. More, and I'm not yeah, quite man. sure. I mean, I know it's been a long day. Uh, I'm, I'm just naming it out of the gate. I, I feel emotionally pretty good, mm-hmm. but physically I kind of look like a like a piece of shit and 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 you too josh i just want to name that you also equally to me look like a piece of shit and i'm just naming Thanks. that out of the gate it's so the, any, it's in a the Patreon feed top, welcome. right no I, yeah the tank top doesn't help your condition there's no <laughs> doubt i mean i feel like you could wear you could be having like a, a george clooney tux and it still would not look good but the tank top is making it even worse yeah i'm i'm struggling man not gonna lie uh today was a long day we were uh brewing a a big double hazy uh oh, nice ipa and so like i'm tired i literally got home what is it uh 20 minutes ago so like <laughs> it was a rush to to hop up on the mic here with you um and get ready to roll but i'm excited uh we should have a, a fun episode today and, i am stoked um, i'm stoked about this i've been looking forward our guest, to it our guest seems to have forgiven our lack of appropriate appearance like i'm wearing a tank top right like who wants yeah. to be interviewed by a guy that looks like he's 16 wearing a tank top nobody the only thing worse would be interviewing me in a tank top so. <laughs> there we go <laughs> oh man well, so Greg, before we hop into the interview real quick, though, so this will come out like I think after Theology Beer Camp is has had its thing. So I'll pretend like, whoa, that was so fun. Um, Dude, sick. That was incredible. I can't believe how <laughs> huge we are now after meeting all famous, these God pods all the in way. person. 
super famous. I'm on Oprah next week. I didn't, I, I didn't That's know that until awesome. after beer fest, but I'm on uh, Oprah yeah. and, uh, I'm representing, uh, rethinking face. So anyway, and second breath, it's just sick. Yeah. Well, thanks trip for, uh, helping Greg get on Oprah. It's been his lifelong dream. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, we do. So we do also thanks to trip. He uh, mentioned this in our, uh, little short episode we did with him and then our inaugural Patreon episode. Uh, but we do have a Patreon feed. Um, you can join for one, five or $10, uh, depending on where you are in life. Um, and we have some fun things for you. Like we will uh, be, for example, placing uh, our video content. So our Zoom calls, our raw Zoom calls uh, will be on the Patreon feed for listeners. Anybody who's, you know, would rather watch us uh, look like shit than just hear us. Um, <laughs> and then also too, we have started like, I don't know what to call it, like a mini series, a mini show with Trip. Yeah. Greg, how do you want to call yeah. it? Um, called Happy Hour. Happy, Happy hours. hours. The, e- hour the S hours. in parentheses. Yep. So it's like hour hours. Like and uh, that's faith. us. Clever. Exactly. We're tying in the parentheses from Rethinking Faith into the, the Patreon feed. But uh, that'll be like Trip Fuller hanging out with us. Um, a little bit more, uh, shall we say, uh, juiced, zesty than normal. And uh, yeah. having some good. I mean, a little more permission to be uh, even a little more um, uh, unbridled. That I don't even know what to. I'm, I'm I'm struggling with the adjectives, but yes, we're free to be a little more raw than even we normally are, which is saying something. Which is really saying something, yeah. But it was funny because Greg, the lat, the first episode we did with him, I was so pleased to see that trip was making you laugh so hard that you physically Dude. had to get up out of your chair. I almost and, like, threw up. Stand up and like heal yeah. over because you couldn't Dude, breathe. I it was <laughs> I literally trip literally made me like bend over and fucking I almost gag because I was laughing so hard. I was choking. That dude, yeah, and and the context of that was brilliant. Anyway, so yeah, so that's good. That's worth that's worth the Patreon feed in and of itself to see me almost throwing up from trip making me laugh. Yeah, most definitely. And we were, you know, we thank uh, all of you for uh, hopping on that and supporting us. Uh, it appears that capitalism has come for all of us, and so here we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> anywho, uh, that's not what our topic for conversation is today. Actually, I'm very excited. Um, I received a book in the mail. Um, I guess a few months back now, actually, uh, by author Timothy Beale called When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the, I'm going to screw up this word, anthro, anthro, anthropocene, anthropocene, yeah. anthropocene. You got it. You got it. Nailed it. All right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's it's, the voice it, of- just, <laughs> it's going to be the word of the year in 2023. So you get used to it. Anthropocene. There we go. Yeah. We're not quite here there yet, but yeah. I've used it in like emails and in stuff that I've written and felt smart about it, but like <laughs> trying to say it fail. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, Timothy Beale, Tim, uh, as you asked us to cause, thank you so much for putting up with our nonsense and uh, hanging out with us today here on rethinking faith. We're excited to have you. Oh, thanks a lot. I'm really excited for this conversation too. Appreciate it. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and if you wouldn't mind just for, um, you know, maybe listeners who aren't quite familiar with yourself or your work, can you do what? You know, the first, the you know, the first, the first question that all podcasters ask? Can you give us some background information about who just you a are? In- nutshell, just just <laughs> nutshell your shit for right, us, Tim. Right. <laughs> yeah, thank you, sir. Yeah, so um, thanks. I'm a I'm a professor uh, in a in a religious studies department at um, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. 
Island. Um, and uh, what else? Um, I, I write stuff and I'm married to a Presbyterian minister. I live in Denver, so I'm not especially proud of my carbon footprint these days, especially <laughs> in relation to the topic of this book. But yeah, that's that's who I am. We've got two kids, uh, probably about your age. Um, <laughs> yeah, not my age, dude. I'm 50. We're I think we're we're uh, we're we're buddies. You're, you're look, yeah. You don't look like shit for 50, man. Yeah. Wow, that's very kind. That's very kind. It's, I, I changed my lighting. <laughs> yep. yeah. he set the he set the zoom feed what's the zoom feature like to make you look better yeah. there's like a yeah like yeah, yeah it's like the makeup yeah. feature the yeah okay. makeup the feature. Ama- yeah yeah the makeup feature yeah don't worry about it okay keep talking to him <laughs> don't worry about how good i like uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just can't so, I can't so yeah stop so, thinking so, about it no uh, <laughs> no it's, it's 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 too much so, so how would you define so so you just said i mean i josh massacred the word i'm about to but anthropocene when when we talk about that out of the gate, how would just for our listener, I'm, I, I'm sure many are familiar with it, but just for those that aren't, just kind of share the essence of the Anthropocene, what that means. Yeah, well, we we kind of gambled on putting that in the subtitle that maybe it would be a, a bit more popular of a word now or more familiar of a word now than than it actually is. But like I said, I think it's gonna it could it's probably a contender for word of the year. Um, in in 2023, so Anthropocene is the um, the new era that our planet is in, um, thanks to us. So um, it is the geological era of the planet in which human uh, behavior is the primary cause of biological and geological change. On the planet, um, and so you know what, what we would call anthropogenic change, human-caused change. Um, it's the era that followed the Holocene, um, and people argue about exactly when it when it started. But most think that would argue that it started around the middle of the 20th century, like the 1940s and 50s, around the time of the uh, first atomic bombs, huge population explosion. Um, and and all kinds of other like um, you know extreme um, uh, curves. What are those curves called when they uh, exponential curves? Um, and so, like if you you know Google image search uh, the Great Acceleration, which is what that era um, is described as, what you'll see are a bunch of graphs of like exponential growth in um, everything from nitrogen. Uh, you know, in fertilizers to concrete to uh, radioactive activity to international travel to urban population to the number of McDonald's there are in the world. And so this is the great acceleration that middle of the 20th century is when most people think the Anthropocene started, uh, when human, uh, you know, behavior um, and actions became the, the, you know, the primary force of change on our planet and it's and, and and you know it's the bed we've made for ourselves as humans and it might be the bed that we um die on too so so i'm in, intuiting that it's not been a positive impact 
<laughs> what? Every, everything no, we do I'm is just, good. Yeah, I, wait, 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 wait a tick, wait a tick. Yeah, right? we are. We not? Are we not inherently just a gift to this planet? Yes, are you saying we're welcome. shitting the bed? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, we've okay. messed it. So, so, so to what degree? So, so genuinely, so clearly, I mean, on on so many levels, we're shitting the bed, and I love that scientifically. This is just this is not a question. Uh, th this is a fact. And the uh, the human impact on the planet. And, and when we think about when, when did you say the middle of the 19th century? Uh, 20th or 20th yeah, century? Like, right after, right after 20th World century? War II, right around then. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking such a, a radical impact in such a brief mm -hmm. term in terms of all uh, previous uh, periods. Yeah. Um, and would you say that the the impact is so radical? Uh, so profound and we'll get to this uh, i mean there's so many layers that we're going to unpack as we read through your book and and and, and the different uh chapters but the 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 impact is so profound that at this point even if we all took our feet off the gas uh that there is an impact now that's indelible that, that it's right. unavoidable okay maybe speak to that aspect before we begin to unpack some of the other variables yeah well part of what i want to want to the conversation that I want to start with this book, because I don't think I have all, all the answers by any means, but I, I think we need to have a conversation about, um, you know, what if on, to some degree it's already too late? Um, maybe it's not, but what if it is? And, and how do we find, you know, hope as opposed to shallow optimism? you know, which easily slides into despair on, you know, what might be a finite, what probably is a finite human horizon. And I, I think that, that, that part of that conversation has to be about, um, yes, like you just said, Greg, the, the, the harm that is already happening as a result of, of our, our behaviors and also the harm that will inevitably um, unfold in, in the years to come. And so part of that conversation has to be about, you know, um, working to alleviate um, uh, unnecessary suffering and working to respond to inevitable suffering that we aren't going to be able to, um, you know, avoid. And, and, and part of our, our denial, what I call in the book, our denial of death as a species, um, is uh part of the 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 you know the the negative effect of that is that th this denial just keeps driving us to invest all our resources in beating climate change for example and stuff like that and we're ignoring all of the harm that's already happening and that will happen and maybe part of what the conversation has to be about is is re you know reallocating some of these resources toward climate justice, for example, um, um, and, and, and things like that. I, I, I use this um, analogy in the book to palliative care. You know, when, when, when time is short, that doesn't mean like put you on morphine and, and get ready to die. Palliative care is about asking what really matters when time is short, when you have a limited time and how might that reorient, you know, your priorities and your values. And one of the things we know in palliative care is that, um, that you want to work on learning how to um, accept and, and, and live with necessary suffering and to alleviate unnecessary suffering. And I think we can scale that up to think about that 
um, in terms of our our you know how we how we want our story to go as as a species. Yeah, I and like just right off the bat, I think um, how you and I mean you hit you know you hit on this right out of uh, the gate in your book. You talk about what you just mentioned, this idea of like the denial of death, um, and I loved how you couched. Uh, that because it's it's almost like the problem behind the problem, right? Uh, is this denial of death, or and I think that's inherent just to like, not even just to like the the form of uh, Christianity that I grew up in, but just in a culture as a whole. Um, like we, you know, like don't put don't put old people in our TV ads, right? Like we want to push that away. Don't show, you know, we we don't show those kind of things. We we send our our elderly away to uh, nursing homes or or whatever. Um, we keep death like a secret. We don't talk about it. We sell products that make us uh, live longer, look more beautiful, whatever. And um, so I just I really appreciated how you kind of couch the whole thing in this idea of the denial of death, um, which like I have a, this is one of my more recent tattoos. It's a, um, like a skull with roses, which is very cliche, uh, but it says death will know my name. Mm. Um and it's just almost for me, like a spiritual reminder and a, the practice, like a memento mori, uh, remember our death. Uh, and just the importance of that for me, um, recognizing that like, yes, one day I, I will die. <laughs> That's like, right. There's not many things I am certain about in life, but that is one of them. Um, and then once you kind of accept that as a spiritual practice, then that changes uh, how you live. And so I, I really appreciated how you couch the, you know, your, your whole book within that idea, because then it changes how we um, see, how we perceive uh, reality and how we interact with uh, creation as a whole. So right out of the gate, I thought Dude, I, I think, really appreciated that. I just want to double down on that, like just particular point and i think it, it needs a little bel belaboring because it's uh so countercultural. so today uh i met you know i'm also uh, i'm an episcopal priest and uh there was someone from the parish that i used to work at who's 77 diagnosed with a disease uh that's terminal and uh, we met today uh he doesn't know how long he has to live and one of the things we wrestled with is so many times when i walk people to death towards death towards home uh that uh, many of their friends and family are just like you're gonna beat this you know don't worry about it we're just gonna get it's terminal it's a terminal diagnosis and and but we have been raised in a culture which is terrified of death and we just deny it we just ignore it and we you know there's in greensboro there's a wonderful retirement community called wellspring i mean literally named after the fountain of youth whereas in calcutta it's called the center for death and dying right they don't fuck around in calcutta and so but we in the West have been so enculturated with denial and a fear of death that we were unequipped to deal with it. And so your book comes out and it's inviting us to reality. It's inviting us to the fact that we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And is and, and, and the thing is, we can approach that and not hide our heads, not have a, a superficial optimism that leads us to, as you said, to, you know, profound despair and uh, literally more hiding our heads in the ground, repression and denial. But uh, there can be a way of engaging uh, death that leads to an expression of life that might be unaccessible without that rea yes. reality. 
Um, so I just want to name that out of the gate that first of all, your work's cut out for you because you are like a prophet in the old Testament, you know, banging, banging the gong for the shits hitting the fan. You're most, almost all the prophets got the shit kicked out of them. Uh, they, they, they didn't get embraced. And so, but you're an embraced here. You're celebrated here, Tim. So, so with that being said, what have you, as we talk about the metaphor of palliative care, uh, that it doesn't mean that it's time for the morphine. Let's just numb out and get ready to, for the heart to stop. Right. It's an invitation to something more profound. Could you unpack that a little more for us? Because I think, I, I think that is so culturally shocking. Uh, unless you've been through, unless you've walked with people through death, uh, it's so culturally shocking that I think that it could numb people out. So I just want to yeah. invite out of the numb into something rich. So just unpack palliative care, palliative care as a metaphor a little more when we talk about climate change. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Um, at first, uh, 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 you're an Episcopal priest. You know, what do you say on my favorite um, uh, liturgical moment in the in the in the church year, Ash Wednesday? You 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 draw the the crosses, you know, the cross and ashes yeah. on the forehead and say, remember that you are dust and that to dust you shall return, which comes yep. from you know that second creation story in Genesis two. That's that's the sort of it's this image of of the human coming from the humus and returning to the humus, and it's right there. And and Josh, I think you're totally right that it's countercultural to 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 sort of live, uh, you know, to live aware of one's you know inevitable death. And I and I putting those two things together, I feel that the that the church and and religion more generally has a really important role in breaking through this denial in um you know in many ways as in ash wednesday you know uh the church and 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 other religious uh communities and organizations have been the places in culture where um death has been um you know acknowledged and understood as part of life and where we have rituals of of, of grief and, um, you know, and, and healing and, and lament and, and, and so on that are part of that. And, and so I think there's a real important role there. Yeah. That the, um, that palliative, um, way of thinking, um, I really draw, uh, a lot of inspiration from, uh, a palliative care doctor, uh, named B.J. Miller, and if if you if anyone thinks of it, to check out his really beautiful TED Talk, um, where he goes into his sort of understanding. He runs a program called Zen Hospice. Um, at any rate, uh, so if we think about palliative care not as giving up, um, you know, and numbing and anesthetizing uh, to die, but rather as recognizing, you know, what if we have you know, um, a year or five years, or maybe even more? What if we don't know exactly how much time we have, but we know that that we're facing something, that we're facing death? How does that change the way we live in a richer and fuller way, like you were saying, Josh? And um, when I think about that um, and try to sort of draw the analogies, you know, one, you know, where you start is is looking at suffering, right? And saying what what kind of suffering is really inevitable and unavoidable, and how do I learn to live with that? 
um, and 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 even possibly embrace that and learn from that. Um, and then what other kinds of suffering are are avoidable that we can alleviate? So when you translate that into thinking about our our ourselves, you know, humankind, maybe on a finite human future, maybe it's you know a, a generation or five generations or even more. But um, you know what kinds of suffering do we need to learn to live with and, and embrace and learn from and what other kinds of suffering and i'm thinking especially about uh injustice and 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 the kinds of suffering that will will come inevitably as a result of 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 climate crisis can we alleviate and how can we reinvest in those another thing that anyone who's in a palliative care sort of context um, is thinking very deeply about is um, relationships. You know, there are relationships that need to be repaired. There is forgiveness that needs to be sought. There might be redemption in 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 some relationships. And and you know, you can think about that on you know in terms of your community and your family and your your children or your parents or whatever. But if we translate that again to the level of the species. We can talk about things like social justice. We can talk about reparations. We can talk about making things right. Even if we don't have that much time left, it's it's right to invest in those things. And then at the same time, you know, um, a palliative care approach to an individual uh, healthcare situation is not going to um, is going to think about cost benefits and think about um, you know expense. So, for example. Um, think of a person who is in total denial of death and, um, you know, sees, you know, is told it's coming, but decides to opt for this really expensive surgery that is going to create all kinds of suffering for this person and for their family, is going to break their bank and leave the family with no money, is going to be incredibly costly to the, you know, on the insurance level too. And, cause all kinds of pain and suffering and um and is uh has a 0.1% chance of prolonging that person's life you know by a month or two months let alone more than that and they do it that's driven by that kind of denial draw <laughs> the analogy that i think of to that is elon musk's spacex program incredibly expensive we're going to somehow get to mars and live there or you know some other, or, or take Jeff Bezos's version or whatever these incredibly expensive um, you know projects that have almost no chance of doing anything are driven by this denial and keep us from paying attention to the work that we should be doing right. So, so with just so so now, okay, I've got a, a thousand questions, uh, but but one out of the gate, would you say then? Um, so of course, you know the classic argument. Uh, for space travel is the power of inspiration, future leaning, you know, that of course, you know, e even back in uh, the 60s, when the initial uh, moon landing uh, was planned, or even just the initial astronaut getting into uh, orbit, it was we have uh, people hungry here on the planet, there's social justice that needs attention, how dare we spend things on things that seem so frivolous, and this tension between possibility, future orientedness, inspiration, and the reality of day-to-day -day suffering. So that's this classic tension. But what I hear you saying is within the palliative care uh, assessment that you're, you're saying 
maybe it maybe if there were a, a future hope of thousands of generations there would be a place for uh mars uh colonization uh, but as it stands uh, with the reality of the impact in the Anthropocene, uh, that the uh, possibility of a future uh, in that way is so scant, so limited, uh, that the reality is that we should be focusing all of our resources on present tense uh, suffering, alleviating the uh, reality of people in pain here and now is yeah. that just is did i hear you correctly and if so just maybe uh, just uh, say a little more about that yeah well um i i do feel that way um i but i also want to say again that really i want to have these conversations so um you know the book is meant to sort of sort of try to open up some space to have those conversations what is the right allocation of resources in in regard to what you're talking about, Brian, um, and I'm not sure, but I feel like that I feel like SpaceX is a, is a good is a good analogy to a really expensive low um, low chances of of you know of being effective um, um, investment, but uh, but I think that um, you know what I just continue to be kind of blown away by and, and vexed by is this power of denial um uh is the way this power of denial can um distract us from the harm we're doing can can even justify the harm we're doing um in so many different ways and uh, you know i'm not a i'm not a policy person exactly or a you know a political scientist or an economist but I think we need those people in this conversation too, um, to be talking about that. But um, the whole space thing is interesting, and you know uh, the James Webb telescope, and um, and we were all watching the, the you know these images from the NASA telescope a little while ago, a couple months ago, and part of what I thought was so interesting about that is that. On the one hand, we were all just, you know, so impressed with ourselves, like, wow, look what human science and engineering can do. It's incredible. Um, this almost a, a sort of testimony to what I call in the book human exceptionalism, just how remarkable and exceptional we are, godlike, really, um, you know, compared to the rest of, of creation. Um, and it, so on the one hand, it's this kind of testimony to that. Um, on the other hand, what we all were expressing that we felt in relation to those images was how incredibly, you know, tiny and puny and vulnerable and insignificant we we are in relation to this this larger, um, you know universe that we're part of and I, I think that that it's fascinating the ways in which sometimes um our greatest scientific achievements actually are also incredibly humbling in that way make us aware of how actually insignificant we are and that paradox um is is really powerful to me yeah and to kind of like piggyback on that and and just the idea of denial i feel like um 
we have this, at least, you know, within our context, my context, uh, which is I live in America <laughs> um, in the year 2022. Uh, like we have this like basically our like capitalism is like has this idea that like everything is just infinite and we're going to just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and get better right, and better right. and better and better and better. And it completely denies like you're saying that's part of the denial that like, well, wait a minute, like there's, this is like a finite resource that we're dealing with. Um, and I mean, I feel like that denial has been going on for as long as I can remember. Now, granted, I'm not very old. Uh, I turned 28 in a few days, <laughs> uh, but I am old enough to remember uh, people like Al Gore, uh, you know, or whoever. Um, and I'm, I'm old enough to, you know, like uh, in elementary school, we would draw like reduce, reuse, recycle signs, you know, and hang them above the trash can in our classrooms uh, and stuff like that. So um, I remember always constantly hearing about this, but it always seems like it's been an issue. You know, like you said, when it comes to denial, it's like, oh, well, like, pff, I don't care about that because I'm going to be dead um, or something like that. Right. Or like where it just keeps getting the can keeps getting kicked further and further down the road and it, it seems like part of what you're saying in your book is like we're getting to this point where the can uh can't really be kicked too much further if we're honest we can't keep the denial happening because i don't know how much time we have left guys <laughs> and so uh that um then like ask like it begs the question then at least for me is like what does that like the place my mind immediately went when I first um, even just saw the, the name of your book was like, okay, well, what does that do to my theology? Yeah. That, because that's huge. Like if that's the case, then based off the like specific form of evangelical Christianity that I grew up with and was handed, that theology does not match what my experience in reality is telling me. So right. what, what do I do with that? Yeah. Um, so like how, and you talk about this in your book, but how, how have you seen like um, Christianity play into that question? What rather, you know, positive or negative? Um, yeah. Cause I feel like maybe sometimes it's been a bit negative. <laughs> I think you yeah. might agree, but like, how does, yeah. Where, where do you see that, that idea of uh, the, the theology behind some of this denial playing into the picture? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a big focus in the book. And there's, there's a lot around that. And, you know, part of what I'm trying to ask is how religion and specifically Christianity have contributed to this denial and to the place we find ourselves, but also how religion and especially Christianity can be potentially a resource for, for finding hope. Um, real hope as opposed to shallow optimism. And I think hope is costly and I think hope is deep and I think optimism is cheap and, and shallow, but um, you know, how, how can we, what are the resources that we can find um, in, in our own our tradition to, to, to break through that denial and to, to find hope on, on that kind of finite horizon. And, you know, I grew up in the same, in the same conservative evangelical kind of um, Christian culture. And I think, you know, about as far as that kind of Christianity can get is something we call stewardship, which is, you know, 
really in many ways a kinder, gentler dominionism. I mean, it still sort of sees us humans as the god, the godlike ones who are kind of in charge and in control of uh, over the, over the other other parts of creation. And I do think that that something more radical needs to be um, needs to be you know rethought. As uh, and I'm glad to be on a, a rethinking faith, you know podcast conversation for that reason um my my friend um nadia bowles weber says that there there are two things we can do with um, our inherited christian tradition uh cremate or compost just blow it up burn it up <laughs> leave it or try to grow something new from it um and i'm on the compost side of, of that argument and so part of what you know, I try to do in the book is go back and say, okay, well, where is this sort of this this idea of dominionism and this human exceptionalism idea, you know, rooted in Christian tradition? It's really just a couple verses, really literally a couple verses, like one one in, in the first creation story in Genesis one, and then a little bit later in Psalm eight are the two main places you see this idea that humans were created in God's image to sort of rule over and subdue and have dominion over the rest of creation. The, the more predominant sort of theological anthropology, that is understanding of what it means to be human from a theological perspective is, is, is not that it, it's a much humbler one. And even our word humble, you know, it's connected to, to humus um, to be humble is to be close to the ground, close to the dirt. And so what I try to do is, is draw out this other lower anthropology um, as a resource for us. And, and there are also all these amazing, you know, passages in, and my scholarship is, by the way, in Hebrew scriptures. So that's where, where I got my PhD and stuff like that. So I, I do spend a lot of time in, in those scriptures um, in the book. But, you know, these these amazing texts, you know, in the Torah and elsewhere, where the land is is really personified as 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 another as another subject that we are in relationship with, that God cares about whether we're on it or not, for example, and and that needs Sabbaths just like we do, and um and 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 where you know, other aspects of creation are personified in this kind of poetic imaginary that 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 builds a kind of worldview of of um you know human animal reciprocity um you know and 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 relationship and interdependence and interconnection and and this idea you know that that the human literally is and this is in the hebrew the human you know is shaped and formed from the humus in genesis 2 from the dirt from the topsoil and um and then god animates this lump of dirt um, into life by breathing you know, divine breath into it, which is also the word translated as spirit in Hebrew. And it comes to life, it's animated to life. And when it breathes its last, it returns to the earth again. And this is a theological anthropology that sees, you know, what it means to be human, like other living things, is to be, you know, intimately connected to the ground, to the, to the earth, to the land, and at the same time, inti intimately connected through breath with the divine, and that is a, I think, a resource for us for re rethinking faith and um, and sort of getting out from 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 
getting off of our thrones and out from under that kind of human exceptionalism that really is the sort of theology of capitalism, Josh. I mean, that's that it goes back to that um, with Francis Bacon and some of these early, early thinkers. And I talk about that in the book, too. But I also just one little more thing about that. Sorry to go on so long. But I think that that theological anthropology that's there in our scriptures is what it gives us is our, our, our traces of an indigenous religious culture that is um, there still and present in our scriptures that can be in resonance, that can resonate with other indigenous religious cultures that we're learning from now in terms of how to move forward um, uh, in the Anthropocene. So um, I want to draw those out. I call it the, the biblical aboriginal you know these 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 traces that are there in the Bible that are that are the you know traces of an Aboriginal religion that was connected to a particular place and a particular land and developed its theology out of that. That's so rich, um, and 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 I love the complexity of weaving that together. <clears throat> it, what one thing I wrestle with as we grapple. Uh, with the implications of the Anthropocene, of the the impact of uh, humankind on our planet, uh, on the climate, on the implications for our future, which by many accounts is dire. Uh, I, I think that there is a natural kind of neurological response to data that is beyond uh, the pale, <laughs> that that is threatening. It, it's kind of like when you get, uh, it, it's that, that time where you get the diagnosis that you have terminal cancer, your brain shuts down, your, your body shuts down, you go into shock. Uh, and, and we're talking about this on a global consciousness level. Um, it, I, I thought they did a very good job uh, of kind of, describing how this might unfold in that film don't look up you know when there's uh yeah. this uh, asteroid coming to destroy the planet and on the last night when the asteroid's coming you've got like huge raves where people are having orgies you've got other people just taking drugs other people committing crimes other people uh sitting with their families in prayer other people's in church worshiping and it was this uh cacophony. don't forget the don't forget the seals the seals on the sidewalk and the and the bears going through the grocery store <laughs> right, right all the things right pandemonium. i mean just the, the total total pandemonium which which i think is congruent i mean again we know with the amygdala uh when with its fight flight freeze or fawn you know it used to be just be fight or flight now but but there's but but that's even within those four that that, that limited milieu there's lots of expressions none of them particularly helpful or complex uh but the the real just on a human level of you know on, on one level as academics uh we can uh, approach this and uh begin to dissect the butterfly uh and uh, say, look at the, the 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 interesting complexity of this particular facet. Um, but but the reality is, uh, as humans, as we hear this, as our listeners hear this, this is um, this is not fucking academic, right? This is right. real life. Uh, this this is what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my children? What does it mean for my grandchildren? And if and on one level, if I can't do anything to actually affect change, then what does it mean for me to live fully? Because at the end of the day, on one level. I feel like there, there's a place to say, how do I, you know, it, it, it would be, I feel like on some level, looking at don't look up, what percentage of the population is going to say, now that I'm about to die, let me 
sacrifice myself in order to help the masses. Uh, I, I think that the natural human impulse is for self-preservation and that this could lead towards just, well, fuck it. I'm just going to do what feels good to me, you know, kind of a fatalism. What would you say, what's the invitation from on, on a real life level through fatalism to something hopeful? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's such an important question. And I guess I do kind of stake my faith in the hope that after that total, you know, brain scramble um, trauma, really, and, and, and therapists are talking a lot about climate trauma now, and climate grief, it's, it's a, it's a big thing. Um, that, that after that, those moments that we, we can, and maybe Again, maybe this is a role for you know um, religious people, religious leaders, religious communities to to help with that work, um, uh, which for me means uh, I get this from my teacher Walter Brueggemann, the, this 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 arc of reality to grief to hope, which is the prophetic path. Um, what the what the what the what the prophets tried to do was to confront you know, Israelite exceptionalism, Solomonic imperial exceptionalism, uh, that ideology of the empire with the reality of what's happening, Babylon's coming, um, and, and then to um, uh, confront, and so that, that ideology then goes to um, denial in the empire to then confront, sorry, my dog is going crazy downstairs, um, to, um, uh, to confront the denial that follows the ideology when things start to fall apart with grief, to to confront ideology with grief, and then to uh, and then when that idea when that when that, that or to confront sorry denial with grief, um, give voice to 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 what's happening, and when that denial fails, what you get is despair. You get you get you know the so the imperial path is from ideology to denial to despair the prophetic one is from reality breaking through that ideology to grief grieving what has happened and will happen to hope and that there really is no hope without grief that you have to move through grief to hope you can't skip it you can't jump ahead and and that's what i mean when i say optimism is cheap and shallow and we're addicted to it and you know, it doesn't last for long and we have terrible crashes <laughs> when we come off of it, right? Um, versus hope, which is deep and costly, and it's gonna take it's gonna take communal work um together. And and I do think that there's a role for the church in that. Um the movie Don't Look Up, I love that movie. Um, it's super satirical, right? Um, and yet um the 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 um the least satirical moment is it is right after the one you're talking about brian with you know fire coming down from the sky and and i don't know why the whales are in it but you know seals and bears and people going crazy and having orgies but but the 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 least satirical moment in that movie is right around that same time and it's around the dinner table and it's 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 that community coming together around the dinner table and they're sort of talking about what they're thankful for and 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 all that they had and then Timothy Chalamet's character I can't remember what the character's name is but he offers a prayer 
And I think I think it's a prayer. It feels to me like it's a prayer that he remembers from childhood, like something that he used to pray. But and that they, they're grateful for that. And then it's and then it's over. I think in some ways what I the conversation I want to help open up space for with this book is a longer version of that conversation around that dinner table is, um, you know, eating and drinking and talking um, about what really matters when time is short, because, um, you know, what matters when time is short is always what matters. But, um, you know, I, I, I think there's work to do around, around climate trauma, around climate grief, around finding spaces to, to give voice to that grief that, our denial-driven kind of we can beat this approach to climate crisis is not giving space for. Um, there's a great little book uh, and a movement led by Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, I believe is her name, called All We Can Save. And, and part of what she's trying to get at there too, she's an oceanographer and an environmental scientist. Part of what she's trying to get at there is is something similar. It's like to break through just feeling overwhelmed by it all and just start focusing on some things you can do, whether it's to beat climate crisis or not, to focus on some things that you can do that are in your wheelhouse that fit your disposition and don't feel like you have to do everything or nothing to, to be kind of overwhelmed in those ways. And I, I, I find that to be a, just a very helpful, very practical um, piece of this. Yeah, and that um, for me, it it it, it just kind of reminds me of this idea, or it's not even an idea; it's more an ex, it's an well, it's both an idea and an experience. If you can move it from idea to experience, I think that's where the money's at. Um, but this idea, and you you stated it earlier, is this idea of our relation uh, to the universe. And also this idea uh, that Greg and I have talked a lot about, which is uh, the idea of this myth of separation. Uh, we've been inherently handed this myth that we are separate from one another, uh, that we are separate from God, and that also that we are separate from creation. And when we believe that we are, you know, when we buy into the illusion that we are separate from creation, um, it is then that we're able to justify the maltreatment, um, the abuse, you know, whatever uh, language we can use um, mm -hmm. towards creation and fail to recognize um, that <laughs> when we are abusing creation, we're also abusing ourselves. Uh, we, when we abuse creation, you know, we're, we're abusing God, those kind of things. Um, and when you talk about hope, I think at least for me, one of the things where I have found hope is actually recognizing that uh, illusion of separation um, and then finding myself within the uh, larger whole of things and uh, recognizing like my role in like, I guess the larger ecosystem of the universe or something like that, whatever language you want to use. Um, and it reminded me too of, actually I listened to it this morning um, an episode from the Robcast, uh, which is Rob Bell's podcast, and he was talking about hope. And Rob was basically saying, like, people talk about hope as if hope is something that exists out there, 
in the world somewhere else. Like the world is out there. Everything is happening out there. And hope is something that we we find uh, out there somewhere. It was like, well, wait a minute. Think about it for a second. Uh, hope is actually something uh, much closer. And hope is recognizing and living into this reality that we are a part of all of these things, right? He, he ties it to this idea of a grocery store, right? Where we can go into a grocery store and, you know, our favorite grocery store, wherever we shop and we look around and like, why is this food on the end cap? Why is this food here and not this food? And it was like, well, it's rather obvious because that's the food that people buy, right? The, the food that they're showing you is the stuff people buy. And so he was saying, we have this idea that we're separate from the grocery store. But when in reality, the grocery store looks the way it does, because when you go in there and shop, you're the one influencing how the grocery store looks. And so he's saying like, that's how everything is. <laughs> and so when, when we talk about uh, life in the um, apothecine, yes, nailed it. All right. I'm super proud um, that for us, hope isn't just like this out there idea, but rather hope can be found in recognizing um, that we are a part, like we are the earth. We're not separate from the earth. Like we are the earth. We are the ecosystem. Um, and once we recognize that uh, we can live into that reality and recognize we have the ability, we have the capability to impact all of these things. And our hope comes from living into those spaces, living into that uh, inherent um, connectedness uh, and recognizing those things. I don't know. I just said a whole yeah. bunch of things that maybe made sense or they didn't. So <laughs> uh, I, I, no, no, I love what you're saying there. And um, it, it's a, it, it's something that, that I try to try to talk about in the book. I, I believe that. And, and that's another way of answering or responding to to the really important questions you're raising, Greg, is that you know part of it is about realizing you know and embracing what I call in the book our Earth creatureliness, which really is about our 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 interbeing, our our interconnectedness and interdependence with everything else, um, and, and our inseparability from that. Our um, I call it subsistentialism instead of existentialism. Like we we subsist and we 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 need to subsend rather than transcend, to go down into, um, you know, this world that we're part of. These other people, the, these other creatures, these non-living creature, non-living parts of of creation and everything. And 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 part of that for me, um, you know, as a as an Alaska kid, is you know getting back in touch with with the woods. And and spending time, uh, Gary Snyder, the the Buddhist poet, talks about the practice of the wild, um, and and that's what he's talking about. Um, I um, talk with my students a lot about this in um, in uh, in this course I teach called Religion and Ecology, and we start the we start the semester. I just ask them to um, to think of a of, of an encounter they've had with nature as wild. And I'm not, I don't define nature and I don't define wild, but just the stories we get and the way that kind of resets us and our sort of disposition um, in those kinds of directions is really, is can be really, really powerful. But I, I, I think what we do as individuals in terms of the work we do to, to realize our, our interdependence, our interconnection, our interbeing, 
um, it's a Thich Nhat Hanh phrase that I really like, but um, that, uh, uh, you know, that's part of the work too, um, is getting our, our hands dirty and, and our feet dirty and getting lost a little bit. Losing, you know, because getting lost in the woods is about kind of stepping off of your throne as a as sort of king of the universe or something like that. I in the book I tell a story I had of an encounter with a with a brown bear that was just sort of profoundly um, transformative for me and and my sort of un own understanding of of what it means to be human. Just the realization that I could be eaten, for example, that sounds a little a little intense, but but that's what I was aware of in that moment. And Greg, for the record, Tim sounds like a fantastic process theologian. I don't know <laughs> if Tim would agree with that perspective yeah. statement or so not. I'm, so, so I'm told. If, so if, I'm based told. off just... of how Tim is speaking, and I don't want to get him in trouble uh, at his university or anything like that, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. My, well, my, and, university, and... my university is a totally secular university, so their only concern would probably be that I was religious in any way, shape, yeah. or, or at <laughs> no. least my department. But um, no, I, I, I do have a lot. I feel a lot of um, resonance with process theology with Thomas Berry and T.R. de Chardin. And I think that Richard Rohr has kind of moved in that direction in, in recent years too. Um, uh, there are parts of it that I don't, that I don't exactly um, fit with, but I think that there's something very consistent with, um, with, with uh, Hebrew scriptures and with Old Testament theology in relation to um process theology. I, 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 I'm no process theolo I'm no scholar of process theology, but I'm a, an appreciator. Well, and when you, when you have the experience of thinking uh, a part of creation, like yeah. a bear might eat you and shit you out to then make you grow flowers. And uh, yeah. you are, you are a part of the process, right? You are, it's not separate from creation, right? right. <laughs> you are, yeah. are literally one. Uh, Absolutely. And, and also you're not in, you're not in dominion. Uh, yeah, you are a part right. of so on some level I make a joke, but on another level I think that's a powerful metaphor uh, and experience mm -hmm. of, of the reality of the total connection. Okay, yes. so, um, so so one thing you know I'm an Episcopal priest, which means uh, I'm in one of the most uh, you know I've been called a capital L liberal uh, progressive. I've been called Antichrist because I'm you know backslider, all sorts of things, uh, and I'm even honestly sometimes hanging on just barely to the institutional church at all. Um, but one thing with, I, th I think we tend to lean very academic. Uh, we also tend to lean a uh, very social justice oriented. Um, and one thing that I found in that it, there is a, uh, we, we can struggle almost with a, um, an idealism, uh, that is disconnected from reality that, that we can push an idealistic agenda uh, that is not congruent with how everyday life unfolds. So, so I'm thinking, as as I hear, and I, I'm I'm being slightly redundant with my previous question, but I think it it, it just leans in because a lot of what I love splashing around uh, in the, the in theology, uh, in uh, history, and philosophy. Uh, and I love Josh knows I love splashing around in process theology. But at the end of the day, where I love to land is in real life nitty gritty into how is this going to change my day and how I choose to live this second of this day. 
And uh, I, I just want to go back to that place of um, the, the magnitude of the, the impact of humanity on climate. And like you're saying, and, and, and you, you, I mean, already, Tim, you're taking the conversation past where the average bear is even beginning, which is, look, the average bear is just beginning to wrestle with Al Gore's, uh, you know, impact on climate, right? That, that, I mean, honestly, to be truthful, the average bear in our population is just beginning to say, wait, shit, really? We actually do have an impact on climate? Uh, and you're taking it to a place of saying... <laughs> we're you know we're we're playing fiddles while rome is burning by addressing some of these issues whereas what does it mean to actually begin to wrestle with the deeper context of how we live with in this palliative care uh, reality um so just naming that and if if we begin to metabolize the magnitude disruptive magnitude of that truth um on on a personal level so you know, we're, we're mammals, right? We're wired to be, uh, reactive. Anytime there's a negative stimuli, it hits the amygdala. Uh, the first response is like I described, uh, limited milieu, but then the invitation of, I think every spiritual tradition, whether it's Buddhism and the gorgeousness of Thich Nhat Hanh or, uh, Christianity and the, the gorgeousness of our, of, of the mystic and wisdom traditions. Uh, what do you do I mean, this is this is literally like you, you're not only splashing around in this pool, but you're like diving in it, uh, diving into the deep end so that you can come up and explain the deep end to the rest of us. How do you on a daily basis, not as an academic, not as a professor, not as uh, but uh, like as, as a person that gets up to not fall into despair, to not fall into, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to rob a bank and go Groundhog Day, you know, um, you know, how do you, or, or just take care, you know, shoot some heroin and just live, I'm going to just get an opium den. You know, how do you actually just begin to say, what does it mean to live with hope in each day? What is your spiritual practice? What is, what is your self-talk? What is your process for actually cultivating authentic hope that leads to compassion and not to uh, what you were describing as the empire's approach that leads to despair? What, what do you do on the daily? Mm. It's a it's a hard question for me. In some ways, I, I um, this is a sort of personal response, but I, I know that something I know about myself that on the one hand, I'm I'm drawn to you know provocative points of view and and ideas and you know pushing things in my in my writing, um, and on the other hand. Um, you know, was raised to be a good Christian kid and not upset things too much. And certainly, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, a bit conflict avoidant. And so um, I think there's sometimes a disconnect there for me. And part of the way I try to bridge that is I, I've had some people tell me, you know, you need to take this, you need to be like that prophet. You need to go it like I'm gonna give some talks in some churches in the next few uh weeks, and you need to go and just like call them out on this. And I'm just like, God, that does not feel like me at all. That that just feels like you know inauthentic to to who I am. But I'm I, what I do feel called to do and 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 what I try to do is um in terms of social life and and activism is is to try to you know 
create those kinds of spaces for that kind of conversation and to foster that. That's what I do as a teacher. That's what we've been, you know, I, I kind of wrote this book with my students. We, you know, it started out as a book about capitalism. Before that, it was a book about sort of, you know, rewilding Christianity or something like that. But I, um, um, and 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 then it became a book about capitalism. It, it's but but I, you know, from the time I had a contract for it, like four years ago, five years ago, um, I was working on it with my students in this religion and ecology class. And so that first year, we all read the proposal and started thinking about what the table of contents should look like. And then in subsequent years, I I was writing more in conversation with them. And um, and then last year, you know, they read the the rough manuscript right before I submitted it, and now we're reading the book in class. Um, it's been heartening and encouraging for me, um, kind of related to what you were saying, Josh, um, that that so many of these students who are like you know nineteen to twenty one this year, eighteen to twenty one, are are you know thank me for bringing this to the table. Um, and I do feel like I can do that. So, you know, being involved in 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 climate justice work, um, doing the kind of work I do as a teacher and as a and as a sort of you know a conversation facilitator. I you know I'm married to a minister. I mentioned Presbyterian minister. I teach adult ed. I, I teach Sunday school. I um, you know am part of what we're doing in that community. Um, Personally and individually, um, you know, I spend a lot of time in the woods. I spend a lot of time by myself. I talk to animals. I talk to trees. Um, uh, I, it's funny. I, I don't. I don't feel the. I don't know why it is. I'm a fairly melancholy person. I have a playlist in the in the book, and it's it leans pretty dark and melancholy too. <laughs> but um, you know, so I, I I don't feel that kind of panic or or, or depression when talking and focusing on this personally, I understand that many people do, maybe the average bear would. Um, and so I think a lot about that, like why why is that? Um, and uh, I think different people are going to, as, as this becomes more real, as this human finitude becomes more real, which I think we, we three believe it will, um, Different kinds of personalities and dispositions are going to are going to respond differently, and we need to be there to do that work, as I said before, and um, uh, and 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 be part of, of that kind of interconnection and interdependency. Um, yeah, so that's a pretty inadequate answer. I'm still working on it, I guess. Brilliant, man. Thank you. Yeah, and I think that that gets the uh, the complexity and and the nuance of it. And, and I do think that as, first of all, I think like anything, it's something of this magnitude is going to take uh, quite a bit of time, which we may or may not have in order to be metabolized. Uh, but I do think the truth of it will be continuing to break in. I mean, just already what's happening globally with uh, climate and uh, the, the impact of that um, and all of the realistic predictions, it's not even far off. Um that's going to be impacting the economy and real life decisions, whether people want to deny it or not, it's just happening. Um, and you're right. And I do think, what does it mean for us on a personal level uh, to begin to um, cultivate a authentic hope and palliative care response 
Uh, and and what does it mean then for us to create the space to offer that for others that are going to be going through hopefully that healthy grief process, uh, mm-hmm. as you said um, from Brueggemann, uh, that that leads um, to 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 that level of that that, that process of hope, uh, and not just into despair. And uh, that's not academic bullshit. I mean, that's just real life, nitty gritty. Uh, reality. And I've seen that borne out uh, a thousand times with families in my own journey with suffering and many of the families that I've walked uh, through tragedy and death, uh, that this is our work. Uh, we are um, uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, we are helping to, to, to birth this truth uh, yeah. into the world and to create a safe space for it to be accepted in a way that leads to life. Um, and also, and, and now just, okay, I know we're wrapping up as we get into eight, we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes, but I just want to put this to a global universal level. Um, you know, again, we tend to be so, uh, anthropocentric, uh, on our planet to think that we are the center of the universe as if, uh, you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I may have read this incorrectly when in many of my, uh, goofy, uh, internet deep readings, but I've heard there's been like six different extinction events on planet earth. Uh, and, uh, we're just the latest. Um, and, but, but of course, within, uh, our scriptures, we think that we are the center, uh, of the universe, whereas as if we cease to exist, uh, would the goodness and beauty of the divine, uh, be questioned, or, I mean, is that, is, is it, is, is, is it limited as, as if we would cease to exist? And, and I do think this calls into question both our limitedness, our, our smallness, as you talked about with a web telescope, you know, but I also think it also speaks to, we don't know, maybe we are, uh, you, you would think statistically, the reality is that there has to be life and maybe even consciousness in many places around the universe, uh, based on the number of, uh, universes and uh, solar systems and exoplanets, but there could be that we are the only, uh, current space of consciousness, which speaks to our radical value, uh, our incalculable value. And so again, it's both the small and the big, and I do think it's impossible to wrestle with these questions without deeply exploring all the uh, existential uh, impact and crises uh, that bump up in me. And I'm just naming a few. Like I, we, I, Tim, I'm just going to pay you as my therapist. We're after this, we're just going to meet for ten hours, and I'm just going to read you a journal entry of all the shit that's stirring in me. And I'm going to get you to calm me down with your gentle melancholy playlist. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I just want to say. Um, I do think this this is this is not this is an invitation for us first and foremost to hear it, allow it to impact us, allow it to invite us to grief. We can't shortcut that shit. We have to invite us to grief, and as we grieve it authentically, then where do we move to hope? And then as we ground on a personal, individual level, then we can invite others to that same hope. But but that yeah. we can't shortcut that process. Right. Amen. That's so good. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. And it, it reminds me too, and I'll, this will be my, uh, my closing thoughts. And these are going to be bad closing thoughts because I'm going to piss off every type of listener possible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so here's my problem with conservatives. Uh, conservatives think that everything is just a personal, like individual basis. If we can just, the person is wrong, whatever. 
And then progressives, their problem is that they only ever focus on a system at whole, the, the larger system. And I think there's an invitation uh, within your book, um, but also within this idea as well, that actually, no, both of these things matter. Uh, because we need we need the individual change like we we have to as individuals have a transformation we have to uh, awaken we have to become enlightened we have to become aware whatever language you want to use to the fact that like yeah shit is very serious <laughs> mm-hmm. and like we have to as you talk about in the book feel that grief and allow ourselves instead of running from the darkness push into that darkness Mm-hmm. Uh, lean into it and, and come out of the darkness on the other side. So that is a real genuine personal transformation. Um, prior, and then also like the systems need to change, right? There are things that systems that exist that are perpetuating the exploitation of creation of the earth, of, of, of people, of whatever. Uh, however, if we just tear down those systems and put a new system in place and it's still the same shitty people eating it, then it's right, still right. going yes. to suck. So we need, the system needs to change as well, but also we need this interior transformation at the same time. And I, I think that there's an invitation that exists uh, within your, your, your writings to uh, come to a place where you can recognize that like, yes, shit is very serious. We need to, t- we have to take it seriously. We have to grieve it. And then after we allow that grief uh, to transform us, then we can move forward and fix these systems, you know, inspire hope and all these kind of things um, so that we, we do have <laughs> a future ahead of us. So um, yeah. conservatives that listen, you know, fight me and also more progressive friends that listen, fight me as well. Um, and actually, I don't fight because I have a very strong ethic of nonviolence. So if you strike me, then jokes on you because you hit a person that's not going to fight back. <laughs> but no, Tim, all that to say, thank you so much. Um, this is yeah, I'll, I'll leave some some room for you to say any kind of closing thoughts before we uh, shut things down. But uh, no, I mean, this is this has been great and I really appreciate it. I was thinking when you said, you know, about how conservatives focus on the individual and progressives on the systems. And um, I think my aunt used to say she was a third grade teacher. Um, you're important, but not that important. <laughs> so on the one on the one hand, you know, recognize our agency and our responsibility. On the other hand, recognize that it's not all about us. Nice. Nice. Well, Tim, uh, yeah. I, and again, that takes us right back to Ash Wednesday, right? Uh, yeah, you know, and totally. I, yeah. And I think there is the, uh, the inherent tension of existence, uh, yes. and, and also, uh, the beautiful invitation, uh, to presence and freedom. And it's, mm. it, 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 it might feel, uh, ironic or contradictory, uh, that, um, our finitude or limitation is an invitation to life, uh, yes. But over and over again, uh, in my experience, uh, I think that is uh, that's truth and that's reality. Yeah. So, uh, as as a a prophet, uh, uh, I just want to say, normally I know you, you your prophets are unpopular and they typically get thrown into uh, ditches and starved uh, biblically. Uh, but I just want to say, in, in our context. Uh, you're celebrated and appreciated, and especially the way that you are uh, articulating this is an invitation 
uh, to real life, which is uh, that process of reality and grief and hope. Uh, so thank you, man. Uh, thank you for uh, being real. Uh, thank you for uh, taking it down from just the academic into real life uh, and uh, and blending those two because we appreciate all of it. So thanks for being here, man. Really appreciate uh, you. Yeah. Likewise, thank you both so much. This was great. Yeah, Tim, thank you. I, I echo everything uh, that Greg said. And uh, listeners, thanks for hanging out. And do yourselves a favor, go snag a copy of uh, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Apothecary. Anthropocene. I almost said apothecine. That's not right. Anthropocene. That's a cool uh, word though, too. Apothecine. Yeah, it sounds like very like uh right. Like it, it should be like a thing. Maybe that's my very next left, book. Very Just left kidding. behind. That's very very left behind. Ooh, there we go. There's no left behind theology here. Uh, yeah, guys, it was it was a lot of fun. Patrons, you can see all of my uh, highlights and such. Um, as I was reading lots of quotables, uh, within the book. So do yourself a favor and pick that up. And uh, Tim, again, thank you so much for hanging out. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, and best of yeah. luck as you continue to to teach, uh, which is something I'm very jealous of. I would love <laughs> to be able to teach people and have the kind of conversations that you have. So thank you for what you do. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Excellent. You do teach, by the way. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what you're doing here. <laughs> Trying, trying. Well, it's mostly uh, I get harassed by Greg. That's how I view the. Yeah, the... <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, and that being said, so as we always say, so listener man, thanks for listening. Light and peace. Have a yep. good one. Peace and love, guys. Yeah.